May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. What is the church? What is it? We tried to answer that question through a song on Sunday in worship. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. Whatever that means. St. Paul tries to answer the question, what is the church? He says, the church is the body of Christ for the world. Whatever that means. What is the church? Is it a building? Is it um, walls and a roof? Or you have strange images in the windows? What makes the church the church? Today we've gathered for worship, and it's similar to how we normally worship, but it's a little different because today is the one day that we get to see the church as the church. Today God holds up the mirror that we might see ourselves as we truly, deeply are. So imagine it's Sunday, it's church, and lots of people are together, and and a a man comes into church, he's wearing a suit, and it's sort of perfect, there's not a wrinkle on it, his tie has been tied perfectly, he he comes in to worship, and he's got his perfect 2.5 children right behind him in line, Uh, he's just walked the dog that morning, he's got that perfect house with the the white picket fence, he's got the perfect car, and not only that, he's parked it perfectly so that no one will ding it when they leave from church. And when he comes in, every, he's got this aura about him. Everyone sort of sees him. They, they, every, we love him. He's amazing. He, oh, he, of course, he's wealthy. And he's always really quick to write that check and make sure that everyone can see him drop it in the offering plate. I mean, he is just, he's the picture of perfection. And right behind him comes a man who is quite the opposite. He's a little disheveled. He didn't shave in the morning. He's wearing the same clothes that he wore to church last Sunday. When he comes by your pew, you can kind of smell him. You can smell what he was doing last night. You can tell he didn't bring a wallet because he doesn't have any money to give to the church. These two men, they come in right at the same time and they could not be more different from each other. Everyone stands and they sing the hymns and we say the prayers and there's the scripture and and the sermon and all that. And at the very end, the pastor says, you know, during the last hymn, if you feel moved, I encourage you to come kneel at the altar rail, lift up your prayers to God and God will hear what you say. And only two people get up from the church, the first man and the second man. The first man comes down, and he says, Oh, Lord, thank you for all of my wonderful achievements. Thank you for all the money in my bank account. Thank you for that sweet ride I've got out in the parking lot. Lord, I've just got it all together, and I'm, I'm just so blessed. But mostly, Lord, I'm just so thankful that I'm not like that schmuck over there praying on the other altar rail. Thank God, I, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like him. And the other man, Meanwhile, he's praying too. And the only thing he says is, Lord, have mercy on me because I am a sinner. This is a story Jesus tells. It's a parable of the publican and the Pharisee, the do-gooder religious type and the no-good, dirty, rotten, scoundrel tax collector. And Jesus tells a story about these two who go to worship. And then at the end of the story, he says, which of these two do you think leaves justified from worship. Everything in life should tell us that it's the first man. He's done all the right things. He's got all the right things. Everything about his life is perfect. He should be the one who leaves justified. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The only one who leaves justified is the second man, who's terrible and awful, and he confesses. 
Jesus says that these two men who seem to be completely different are in fact one and the same. There's only one difference between them. It's not their wealth. It's not how clean they are. It's not how put together they are. The only difference is one of them knows they're a sinner and the other one is so high on his own stuff that he thinks he's perfect. That he thinks he's perfect. In other words, one of them knows he's a sinner and the other doesn't. So for a long time, the church has gone down one of two roads. There's been two different understandings of the church, two different embodiments. The first is that the church is a museum for saints. And the second is that the church is a hospital for sinners. A museum for saints and a hospital for sinners. In, in the museum model of the church, we hear about those who are the greatest of the faith. They get lifted up for all eyes to see. We hear about that first man from the the, the, the parable. We lift up all these virtuous people and then someone like me says, be like them. Act like them. Don't sin. And then we're told all the lists of sins and we're said, don't do these things in the museum model. I've always thought it was kind of funny. You know, telling people not to sin doesn't really ensure anything other than when we go to the dentist and our dentist tells us, tells us to floss. We, we know that we shouldn't sin. We know that we should floss. <clears throat> But just because we know we should do something doesn't make us any more inclined to do it or not. In the museum model, it's all run by guilt. It's run by shame. When was the last time guilt or shame made anybody any better? The church is a museum for saints. The other model is that the church is a hospital for sinners. It's very similar, but importantly different. In that model, we still hear about what virtue looks like. We still hear about what sin looks like, but only ever in the light of Jesus, which means it's a church not of guilt and shame, but a church of grace and mercy. We are given capital T, unadulterated truth about the condition of our condition. We are told, whether we want to hear it or not, that we are sinners, but only while surrounded by a community of people who refuse to let our sin define who we are in their eyes. We are reminded over and over again through our interactions with each other that God refuses to give up on us. So in the first church, we clobber one another with guilt and shame, ensuring the only real thing is that we leave feeling worse than we arrived. And in the second church, we hold fast to one another with the hope and promise that the only hope we have isn't actually inside of us. But it is in the one who comes to save us. How have you experienced the church? As a museum? As a hospital, Ash Wednesday, this day that's on the church calendar each and every year, is the one day that we absolutely have to get right with regard to who the church is and who the church is for. Today, we begin the long march to the cross, an ever-present reminder of our sin. I mean, we got this big cross. Sometimes we try to put a screen in front of it, but then we have that nice photograph of it so you still see what it looks like behind it. We've got 12 cross-shaped images in the walls all around us. Do you know that the average church that's built today actually does not have a cross in its sanctuary? When people are asked, well, why, you know, you're building a new church, why didn't you put a cross in it? The number one response is we didn't want to offend anyone. Do you know what Paul calls the cross? An offense. It's kind of the point. It stands as this stark reminder whether we want to see it or not. 
It's a reminder of our sin. And the hour in our sin is important because when we think of sin, if we think of sin at all, we almost never think of anything inside of us. Instead, it's easy and even a bit fun to point out the sin in other people. We're like the Pharisee who comes and says, well, thank God I'm not like that guy. It's so fun to do that. Do you know how much fun I've had over the last few days making fun of the, the various Super Bowl commercials that I saw? And the people who fall prey to that, it feels good to point out the sin in other people. But Jesus has a word for that. Why are you so concerned with the speck in someone else's eye and you're not even looking at the log in your own? See, Jesus says that sin isn't just out there in the world. It comes out of our very hearts. And it's not just our actions. When it comes to sin, Jesus says it's the thought that counts. You know, you, you, you might think that you have to commit adultery to be an adulterer, but I, I say, no, no, if you just look at someone and you think about them when you shouldn't be thinking about them, adultery. You've heard you said you shouldn't murder anyone. I say, if, if you want to kill someone, even if you don't do it, you're a murderer. Which is why it's so very important for us to speak of sin faithfully. Because only when we get our words right, only within the context of the cross and the resurrection, are we able to tell our story truthfully and therefore live truthfully. Lent is a time of truth. It's a time when God refuses to let us consider anything less than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross that hangs there for us to see day after day is a reminder to, to the lengths which God was willing and is willing to go to save sinners. The seven deadly sins are not in the Bible. You can go look for them, but you won't find them. They're not part of a list that Jesus gives when he's offering his Sermon on the Mount. They're not etched in stones coming down from Mount Sinai with Moses. They're not in the Bible anywhere. And yet there's this sort of cultural and even religious awareness of these collected list of sins. They actually originate in the 6th century with a Christian named Evagrius of Pontus. He was a monk. We call him a desert father. He, he wanted to remove himself from the temptation of the world, the temptation of the city, so he went to live out in the wilderness. And irony of ironies, it was only in the wilderness that he discovered his sin. It was through his prayer, through his reflection, he discovered that there are seven sins that make it almost impossible to live in peace with other people. There are seven things we do that make it almost impossible to be the church. He said they are pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lechery, otherwise known as lust. But they have more elegant Latin names that are fun to say. Superbia, invidia, ira, asadia, avaricia, gula, and luxuria. That's the word for lust. The seven deadly sins. It's a bit odd, I think, to consider that these sins, these seven sins, are somehow deadly. You know, surely murder, incidentally not on the list, surely murder is more deadly than sloth. And yet, it's their generative qualities that make them so dangerous. In other words, we hopefully don't have any murderers with us tonight in worship, but there's no one here who is beyond the realm and the touch of the seven. We might not have any murderers, but every person in this room has been angry. Every person has felt pride. 
these seven sins, in fact, are so very ordinary, so pervasive in our lives that often we fail to see how terribly they warp our lives. And so during this season of Lent with seven opportunities for worship, we, as we look inwardly, we're going to consider seven different times these seven sins. And we start with pride, superbia. If pride is a sin, it is a Christian sin. I know that might sound odd. Well, if it's a sin, of course it's a Christian sin. But it's important to say it's a Christian sin because only the church can tell us the truth of our sin. And more to the point, I don't think pride would be considered a sin in our eyes unless we had the example of Jesus and the proclamation of the church. Because pride, oddly enough, can actually seem like a virtue. In my office downstairs, right below the sanctuary, I have a whole shelf of books that are all about leadership church leadership. And in every one of those books, it says if you want to have the best church staff on the planet, the one quality they need to have is to be able to take pride in their work. Pride. I mean, we encourage pride all the time. We have pride parades. We ask people and encourage people to have pride in their heritage, pride in their beliefs, pride in their food preferences, pride in the team they rooted for in the Super Bowl. I mean, it's all about pride. The word pride is associated with all sorts of seemingly positive things like self-respect and self-esteem and self-confidence. Do you notice the one word they all have in common? It's all about the self. It's only in the church that we would ever hear about the dangers of pride. You know, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we've shorthand, we made a shorthand of it these days. We don't, we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. You know what we do? You know what we're told to do? We're told to love ourselves. And usually, the love of self comes at the expense of the love of neighbor. When the self is the only thing that matters, when our pride blurs us from seeing anything or anyone else, when we look at all of our achievements, all the things we've earned, that we've done, we think they've come from our hands, Jesus has a word for that. It's called idolatry. The rest of the world, uninformed of the story that gives meaning to our stories, thinks that pride is essential to live. And pride, at times, is not a bad thing. There are times that we should have pride, but it's a slippery slope. The difference between having self-esteem and believing that you're more important than anybody else. That's, That's really at the crux of the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. It's that the publican believes deep in his bones that he is wrong. The Pharisee cannot see that, refuses to see it, and believes he is better than any other person. Jesus says, beware of practicing your piety in front of other people in order to be seen by them. It's in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. He, he continues to rip apart the religious practices of those who, who pray in public because they want to be praised for it, for those who show off that they're fasting to get gain, prideful gain. And all of the things Jesus lists, they're all in the category of self-justification, self. Again, it's all about me, 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 me. That's what the Pharisee prays for. He says, God, I'm so grateful that I'm just the way I should be, and I'm not like that guy over there. That kind of prayer is a a projection of our self-inflated righteousness, and it's a denial of our sinful truthfulness. Lent, for better or worse, is a season of truth, a season of accusation, 
It's a time that we hear who we really are, and that is hard. And it always starts with ashes. Ashes, as I said earlier, are, are assembled throughout the entire Bible, and whenever they appear, they are a sign of finitude, frailty, and failure. But more important than the ashes themselves is the fact that when we wear them on our skin, it's in the sign of a cross. It's in the sign of a cross. When we have these on our foreheads, we're reminded not just of our sin, but of Christ's victory over our sin. Jesus rebukes us for practicing our piety in public. He, he rejects our sinful pride. And it can cut right to the heart. It can make us feel worse than when we arrived. And sometimes we need the truth. We need the truth that cuts when we've convinced ourselves that we have to be better than everybody else in order to somehow earn our ticket to heaven, when we're willing to push everyone to the side to maintain what I want because it's going to somehow get me in a better condition with God, we fail to realize that the crosses on our foreheads are a reminder that heaven isn't something that we earn. Heaven has already come down to us. In a few moments, all of us are going to come forward to receive the ashes and the words that are reserved for this day. I, I promise you, they are not easy words to receive. They're even harder words to say. I've done this 10 years in a row. Every single year that I've imposed ashes, someone has died before the next Ash Wednesday. Because that's what happens. They're hard words to hear, hard words to say. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's the same thing as saying, remember that you're a sinner, which oddly enough is the best news around. We might even call it good news. You know why? Because Jesus came to save sinners, and only sinners. I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.